You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, look, good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, John Mitchell, and I'd like to welcome you to the ODI for the launch of a, a new ALNAP report, Transforming Change, uh, which we have here. It's, it's on your seats, so please do take a copy. And, of course, it's also outside uh, in the, on, on the shelves outside, so you can take, take them from there if you haven't got one on your seat. I'd also like to welcome our online participants. Uh, you can't see us. Uh, uh, sorry, we can't see you, but you can see us, I hope, and hear us clearly. And we'll look forward to hearing from you later when you have an opportunity to join in the discussion on the online chat room. Now, before we get going, there's a few housekeeping uh, points. And so uh, fire exits, uh, in case of emergency, the assembly place is... You, you go out the way that you came in, you turn left under the bridge, and apparently we assemble outside Nando's. Uh, so there we go. The event is being... Yes. <laughs> the event is being live-streamed and recorded, and it will go on the ALNAP website. And so Chatham House rules do not apply. You can all uh, join the conversation on uh, Twitter, and the hashtag is... ALNAP 31. And just to get us going, uh, we'd like to take a sounding about what all of you think about how good humanitarians are at managing change. And our comms team, I understand, have organised a very, very quick, simple survey, which we're going to see on screen now. Uh, and you can reply to this link on the screen. There it is, there's the question. The humanitarian system is good at change. You can strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree, slightly agree, agree or strongly agree. So if you'd like to do that now, that would be really great and we can just quickly take a, a sounding. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll, give you, I'll just give you a little time to do that. I'll just say a few words about why this report is so important. And I think the answer is that, that much of this discussion has centred on what should change in the humanitarian system and why it should change. But there's been much less uh, attention paid to the process by which change actually happens in the humanitarian system. And this report has attempted to redress this balance, and I think it's done a, a really good job in doing this. And so this afternoon, we're going to take some insights from this report and some lessons from past change processes like the transformative agenda, and then take a critical look at some of the change processes that are happening today, like, like the grand bargain and the new way of working, to name a couple. So uh, I wonder, um, have we got results from, from this? We do have results, and so here we have... Let's just see what, how good we think the system is at change. And so, oh goodness, we don't think it's very good, do we? So 45, okay, so, okay, so nearly half, 
half of you... Oh, it's changing all the time. It's changing all the time. It's making me dizzy. Nearly half of you disagree with that uh, statement. Uh, is it 50? It's 50-50, isn't it? More or less? No, it's half, half, half disagree and then another quarter slightly disagree. Oh, OK. So the people in the agreeing, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's currently, 20%. it's only about 20%. 20% agree with that? To some degree, and everyone else thinks not going to change. OK, so we're a pessimistic crowd, I'm afraid. <laughs> but nevertheless, we might come back to uh, this at the end of the day and see if we've changed our mind after we hear... Uh, uh, from the panellists. Um, uh, you know, I think there's going to be some very searching questions in this discussion, and we have three panellists who are extremely well-placed to help us answer them. And on my left, um, I'll introduce them to you now. We have Andres Des... Uh, this is going to be difficult. Andres Desai Horbath? That works. I don't think it really did. He's being very polite. <laughs> He's project manager at the Global Public Policy Institute in, in Berlin, GPPI, and he's the lead author of the Independent Grand Bargain Report, and he's a member of the team that reviewed the transformative agenda five years after its launch. And previously, Andras was a delegate with the ICRC in Iraq. And sitting next to me, um, all the way from Geneva, is uh, Melissa Pitotti, and she's the Acting Director of Policy at uh, ICFA, International Council for Voluntary Agencies. And Melissa's team focuses on force displacement, humanitarian financing, humanitarian coordination and partnership. And she's actively involved in the grand bargain process. And at the end of the... Uh, table. We have Sir Brendan Gormley, and Brendan is an international development consultant. He's chair of the CDAC network and Accountability Now, and he used to be the CEO of the Disasters Emergency Committee for a long, a long time, a long time, several years. And before that, he was the Africa director at Oxfam, also for a long time, if I may say so. It is true. It's true. In fact, it's 10 years. I've got it down here. Uh, Brendan's on the board of many uh, civil society organisations. He's had a distinguished career and he's been part of or very well cited on many of the humanitarian change initiatives over recent years. Before we get to the report itself, I understand our comms team have been so busy we've got something else to show you. Uh, it's an animation. I hope that all the online participants can see this as well. As humanitarians, we spend a lot of time debating what needs to change in our sector. This is important, but we also need to look at how things change. When you're trying to change something, your understanding of how that thing works matters. We often think of the humanitarian system as a machine. If there's a problem, we identify what's not working and try to fix that broken part. This approach makes us feel in control. But is this the most effective way to understand change? What if the humanitarian system is less like a machine and more like a human mind? We all know the mind is a hard thing to change. People aren't always rational and perceptions, fears and emotions can derail change processes. Or, what if we think of it as an ecosystem of independent organisms, 
acting and reacting to each other and to changing situations. Normally, their individual adjustments don't amount to much, but lots of little changes can build up to a tipping point and reshape the system as a whole. None of these analogies capture exactly how the humanitarian system works, but each can teach us something about change. Firstly, change is about people. People's perspectives about change vary. We need to listen to these, be open to disagreement and communicate the reasons and nature of change as clearly as possible. Secondly, we have less control over change than we think. We need to be prepared to adapt to unexpected shifts and support positive changes already underway. Change takes a long time, involves many actors and success is not guaranteed. So a realistic approach is key. How do you see the humanitarian system? Are you prepared to see it differently? I thought I recognised Diane Abbott's voice as, as the, uh, as the, as the <laughs> voiceover on that, but I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Um, let's go to the report. Uh, at the end of the table here, we have Paul Knox-Clark, who is head of research at ALNAP. Paul is the lead author of this report. Paul, what's in it? Thanks, <laughs> um, I really like that. Uh, I really like that. Animation, actually, oh, that was really good, um, and it will be, I think, on the on the website and available for people to 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 download and use, great, yes, it will, so that's good. Um, yeah, I mean, the idea of the, the animation, I'll, I'll, you know, some of, some of these things will come up again, but it was really to think about change in a different way, to kind of just sort of take a, a visual a, a approach to it. Um, but more importantly than thinking about change in a different way, I think, was really thinking about change at all. Um, as John said, it, it is sort of kind of amazing when you look back at, you know, sort of foundation of ALNAP and HAP and, and, and the sphere standards and transformative agenda and humanitarian reform and, and the grand bargain and, you know, all, so many attempts to change things and so much, so many vocal statements and meetings and people really, really engaged in the idea of things have to change. So many people believing that change is important um, and yet spending so very little time thinking actually about how it gets done. You know, it's, it's a bit like sort of launching a, a massive humanitarian response without thinking about HR, logistics, access, any of the actual doing of the thing, but just saying, oh, well, you know, we want to shift 20,000 tonnes over there and we're sure it'll happen somehow. Um, so you have all these change processes and at the level of the whole system, but also, I mean, you know, I'm sure in your organizations you either currently have or have had or will have at some point quite soon uh, organizational change processes going on. And, and very often, you know, they, they don't really ask that question about how can we do stuff, but they just follow this default pattern, you know, and it's a default pattern, I think. It's a, a route that many of us have walked often. 
Um, you know, you get posts created to manage this new change project, you get a change project, new structures, policies get written. Um, there's some training in how to do the policies. Uh, and then at some point down the line, maybe there's an evaluation of this of this change project. And generally, that evaluation says something like, well, yeah, produce some new structures. And um, there's some new procedures in place now. Uh, and they're making a bit of a difference in some areas. But basically, the procedures aren't really being followed in the way that we expected them to. And um, we need more buy-in or more political will wasn't there. Or, you know, and, and we've read the evaluations, and they are fairly similar in their results. Um, and so before we go over that all over again and come up with similar evaluations, um, it's worth, I think, us all thinking about why all this doing doesn't fundamentally change our being. Um, why all the new units and guidance and guidelines and, and you know, don't, don't actually seem to often really get purchase on our fundamental behavior. Um, and that, as the, the, uh, the, the film suggested, means firstly sort of examining our assumptions um, and, and sort of going beyond examining, you know, the, the assumption that, that this is a machine and we can somehow just kind of have a plan and know what is going to happen in advance and it will follow the plan and we can act on something which is separate from us, you know. Um, which is kind of where all this project planning and, 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 and the pr production guidance idea comes from. I mean, who, who here is trying to learn something new, a new sport, or just put your hand up. Yeah? And who here is involved in uh, social change, women's empowerment, diversity issues in their lives? Yeah? And do any of those people who put their hands up think that you're going to be able to do that according to a plan? you know, in the next, what, let's say, the next funding period of, what, a year? Is that going to get done? I mean, I'm assuming that for many of you the answer is no. Yeah? So we kind of know that social processes, when we engage in them, in our own lives, are difficult, and that learning and changing, even ourselves as individuals, is difficult. Um, and I think, you know, as the film said, when we start thinking about that, probably, and I'm afraid, you know, the fundamental lesson is that change is going to take longer and it's going to be more difficult and less programmed and less likely to follow the tracks than, you know, a sort of planning approach might suggest. Um, and yet we kind of know that and it's just, and I know it, and yet we all, or many of us, I personally, default back to that, even knowing that it's not actually what experience suggests. There's something very, very comforting in the idea that you can have this project plan and do a change like that. Um, so what we did with the meeting was we had this, this really excellent opportunity to, to talk to and to hear from lots of people who had been right down in the weeds, really trying to work with complex and difficult change programs of all kinds. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was a great luxury. And I'd like to just bring out, I mean, there's much more in the paper, of course, but I'd like to bring out 
five of the things that were pretty consistent across most of the, the presentations and discussions that we had at the meeting. And there are five things about that were common in those changes that seemed to work better. So where things worked better, these things seemed to take place, and where they didn't, where these things weren't done, things ch the change programs seemed to be less effective, if that makes sense. The first one. First lesson was about bringing people together. Um, change, we saw time and time again in these stories how change initiatives ripple out in an organization or a system. You think, we think it's just about a technical fix, perhaps, but actually to make that happen, all sorts of other changes, great examples of how finance had to be involved, how HR had to be involved, how other organizations had to get involved. You know, the ripples went much further than people originally thought when they were sitting down to think about the change. Um, and because of that, changes that recognized that this was going to happen and at the outset of the process and throughout the process brought people in seemed to be much more effective. Um, that is, they brought in broader groups of stakeholders to do a variety of things, to talk about how the change might affect them, to identify potential resistance to the change, things that people were worried about, um, and to... Um, create, if you like, a social reality. The more people who were talking about this thing, the more inevitable it began to seem. And so this creation of platforms and social reality was very important in a lot of the successful programs that we heard about. The second lesson, copy, don't design. Um, I think uh, Duncan Green has written a lot about this, and, and, and we saw it again in, in, in several examples. Changes that started with a blank piece of paper saying, okay, what would the perfect look like? Let's just, let's forget we've got all this stuff here and just design it out. You know, uh, it didn't really work so well, you know. But changes that started saying somewhere in here, something, however small, something is working, and where the objective of the change process was to kind of fan that spark into a fire tended to be much more successful. And why? Because they were working with something which could already exist in the system. Yeah? The potential for that change already existed. So copying, not designing, seems to be a good tactic. Thirdly, act, don't plan. Uh, in a changing environment, everyone's acting at once. We saw that, you know, everyone's working on each other. And it's long been recognized by Napoleon and many others that planning, the first thing that actually happens when you start doing things is that the plan goes out the window. It becomes redundant. Um, if you think about, you know, playing, playing football, as, as John introduced us at the meeting, um, if you think about campaigning for election, if you think about bringing up a teenager, you know, none of these things are things which you're probably going to do by numbers, you know, according to one, two, three, four, following the plan. Um, what tends to happen is that you act first, see what's working and do a bit more of that and don't do the stuff that is working. It's, it's actually thought of in other areas as strategy in the rearview mirror, yeah? And it seems to be a much more effective way to actually get things that work to happen. Uh, it also allows you to take uh, advantage of opportunities 
And a lot of the changes that we saw, and this I don't think does come through really in the, in the report, but a lot of the changes we saw had been catalyzed because something had happened. Sadly, often something bad had happened. And that made people um, engage with an idea. And when they were engaging with the idea, it was possible for the change actors to do something. Uh, Perversely, and this was one of the difficulties, I think, in writing the report, there's a lot of yin and yang in the old change business. You know, there's, there seem to be a lot of, lot of contradictory messages come through what works, or at least messages that are in tension with each other. So on the one hand, it seemed that, you know, more flexibility and less planning was important. But on the other, there are things that need to be planned. Knowing the kind of creating a container, a set of boundaries within which these things can happen, within which flexibility can happen, seem to be very important. And these were very simple boundaries. They were making sure everyone agreed basically on what the goal was and making sure everyone agreed on who did what. Yeah? So it's, it's, not, you know, it's not a really complex plan. It's just some boundaries within which there's a lot more freedom to act. Uh, and then finally, the last lesson and this is just a quote from several people at the meeting, is put people at the centre. In this weird kind of way, um, we often kind of seem to think that organisations or departments or business processes are the basic elements, the basic components of organisational change. And they're not. People are the basic components of organisational change. No change is going to occur without people in some way, great or small, changing their behaviour. Um, and that means that instead of, you know, office politics and people's likes and dislikes and their fears and being a sort of annoying kind of thing out on the side that we kind of have to deal with peripherally, that is actually the central work of change. Those things are the centre of the work. Practically, what that means is giving people a lot of chances to express themselves. It means listening. And I'd, I'd like to, I'll, I'll finish, if I may, just with a personal example of this. So I'm moving house. And um, my children, who are uh, young teenagers, absolutely cannot stand the idea of moving house. And on several occasions, they burst into tears. And I'm sorry, but I know they're not going to be watching me, so that's OK. Um, burst into tears just at the whole idea. Yeah, no, There was no nothing to be done about this. It was only when... I'd had the time and actually slowed it right down to listen to why they wanted to, didn't want to move, that I realised that it was all about for my daughter the fact she didn't want, she had just redecorated her room and she wanted her friends to see it. And my son thought by moving house we would be changing rugby team and he'd be going over to the opposition. Yeah. Now, I didn't know that, but as soon as I knew that we could be very clear that your friends can come and see the house before we move, yeah? and there's no way that you're going to play for Oxford Harlequins. It's never going to happen. <laughs> so uh, you're staying with your team. And those two things dealt with that. You know, the, 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 the move is now something that everyone is behind. And it's a little story, but it's actually, when I was a change consultant, a story I have seen often in the sort of executive suites of large organisations. Because people haven't had an opportunity to explore why they are resisting, they just resist. So people and their emotions should be at the centre of the process. Thank you very much.
Paul, thank you very much. It was really clear. Some excellent insights. Uh, now we're going to go to our panel to get their uh, reactions. Um, and I'm going to start with Andras. And I, I've got a couple of questions uh, for you, Andras. And, I mean, you have uh, looked at the transformative agenda and the grand bargain. I think you've done uh, evaluations of, of both of them, reviews of both of them. So I'd like to ask you about um, the, the, the differences between the transformative agenda and the grand bargain, what differences you have seen in, in, the, in the processes that they, they adopted. And also, um, you know, a more general question about, do you think on that basis that the, uh, the system, the humanitarian system, has the ability to learn and evolve accordingly? Over to you. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, and congratulations, Paul, for this report. When I read through, I, I found it to be a very useful frame to think about change, so I found it valu uh, valuable. Um, going to your question about the, the transformative agenda and the grand bargain, maybe I, I start with the TA, the transformative yes. agenda, and I assume that everyone in the room is aware of these uh, change processes. Do you know what? I would just remind people what the transformative agenda is, if I were you, just very briefly, if you can. Okay, um, I won't spend much no, time, though. No, um, no. But, you know, basically it's an interagency reform that aimed to improve the effectiveness of aid. Um, it, it was, and I'll get to that point, it was primarily designed uh, as a response to um, uh, large-scale natural disasters, so improve the, the predictability of the response to improve the... Um, so the, the the quick surge that le that you know um, uh, is prompted by a natural disaster. Um, so the transformative agenda, as it was conceived, it it, it and and it was very similar to the humanitarian reform in that regard, um, was decreed from the top. So this mechanistic idea of change. So they they set out a number of protocols, panels, uh, processes, on on how the humanitarian system, the joint response, should change. So going back to that little mm. uh, video, mm. it was mm. the first mm. kind of mechanistic change. Um, but there are clear differences in how the change process was managed. And the transformative agenda had a, a hands-on approach with a group of leaders, mm. um, the emergency director, uh, directors group, mm. um, which which is uh, basically a group of emergency directors from each UN agency and uh, a few uh, NGOs. They regularly discussed opportunities and challenges in the rollout of the protocols. They conducted country visits, commissioned operational peer reviews. So basically what we saw there is that you have a cookie-cutter uh, method to change, but on, the, on top of that or on the bottom of that, you have a live problem solving by this group of managers. And I think that is a quite powerful tool, a quite powerful idea on how to change. Yet, um, and, and we think when we looked at the transformative agenda, we saw great results, you know, some results, but the, the, the extent of change was not as perhaps as desired. So there was much to be um, improved. Um, and one reason um, is that there was so, some of a certain mission creep that uh, happened with the transformative agenda. So it was meant to be applied in large case sudden onset mm. natural disasters, mm. and eventually it was applied to conflict situations. Mm. And 
I believe this mission creep was one of the factors that the transformative agenda became one of these, you know, bloated, mm. process-heavy um, mm. um, 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 change uh, initiatives. Mm. And there's another issue there, which was perhaps a design flaw, we could call it. Um, donors were not subjects of the reform, mm. and it took a long time, I believe, until donors started to see themselves as part of the problem and the solution. Mm. So it was more like donors... Mm. telling aid organizations mm. how to improve, what to improve. So it mm. took time to get to that realization. Mm. Now, the grand bargain, mm. uh, this is the, the, the most recent uh, change initiative uh, mm. that was launched at the World Humanitarian Summit, and that I think, I hope, that is mm. still the flagship proposal today. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's quite a different animal. And, and when I you know, discuss some of the characteristics, I think you'll recognize that there, you know, there have been improvements, perhaps as a result of learning, maybe not, maybe yes, but it, there have been improvements to how the transformative agenda was conceived mm. and implemented. Mm. So the grand bargain focuses on results instead of defining the process, the way to how to get there. So basically it allows aid organizations and donors to, to reach the targets on their own path, choose their own path. Sure, these targets that the grand bargain defines could have been a little bit more ambitious. So if we look at the cash, for example, it only includes a, a, an aspiration of mm. using more uh, cash transfer mm. programming. So, I mean, you can have problems, but by design, setting, tar setting targets and results rather than focusing on the process is, I think, a, a great feat and, and very <laughs> promising. And in, in our assessment of the Grand Bargain um, that we finished this June, and I left a few copies outside on the gallery if you're interested, uh, we saw that follow-up was uh, pretty good. I think it, 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 it causes you know, some, some sort of uh, optimism. Um, we should just maintain peer and public pressure. Then another important point I wanted to, to raise here is this, uh, the grand bargain learned from this process overload, there is a conscious effort that the reform does not lead to an increase in process demands. Mm. Importantly, donors have become part of the deal, mm. and, and that's pretty revolutionary. Um, so there is mm. this idea of quid mm. pro quo mm. between donors and aid, aid organizations. Mm. This has been instrumental in, in, in creating the grand bargain, but we found that it doesn't really play a, a role today. Mm. And, and I think there is still a lot of confusion mm. of what this quid pro quo actually mm. entails. Mm. So what are donors supposed to give? What, what, what is part of this core bargain? Mm. Um, it is, and I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a second, but mm. I think that this quid pro quo is, is a very powerful instrument to address some of the deep-seated structural issues. Mm. Um, so it holds a lot of potential, mm. but it's also... Mm. Um, it could lead to impasse. It mm. could lead to uh, a breakdown of mm. trust. And, and perhaps that's what we're mm. observing today. Mm. Um, but let me just mm. conclude this, that the, what the quid pro quo, what, what the goal of this is, and I, what I think is, and what I read out of the grand bargain, is it's a shift in agency mm. um, and decision-making away from donors to aid organizations which would allow these aid organizations to focus better on the response mm. and for less. Mm. And at the same time, not compromising current levels of accountability mm. to, to taxpayers. 
And, and I thought that one of the reports that you have here in this house, which is uh, the, the, the time to let go, I think mm. that, that phrase, letting go, okay. kind of mm. um, um, uh, embraces that. Mm. And um, so I would just mm. say that, you know, so far, and, and that's a little bit worrying, and, and maybe later we can address mm. that as well. So, so far, we have seen more the dark side of this quid pro quo. <laughs> so we have seen, um, we have seen donors holding their own progress hostage to aid organizations' progress on transparency or on cutting management costs. Mm. Um, and, and that is very worrying, and, and, and that, again, mm. can lead to a spiral, mm. downward spiral, in, in terms of relations, and, mm. and, and can be very dangerous. Mm. And just that, that's very, very interesting indeed. Um, we'll come back to Paul, because I think it would be great if you had a, a re reaction to that. But... Staying on the, on the grand bargain, I'm going to turn to Melissa. Um, you're, you're very involved with the grand yes. bargain. Oh, good, okay. Well, it would be great, perhaps, if you could pick up on the points mm -hmm. Andres made there about the pre, uh, quid pro quo mm -hmm. thing. Um, but also, um, I, I wanted to ask you if you could pick anything from this mm -hmm. paper and, and make it happen in the grand bargain process, mm -hmm. uh, what would it be? And how likely do you think it would be to happen? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, well, I want to start by just saying congratulations. I think this paper for me was like taking a walk down memory lane. On every other page, I would read something that really reminded me of a change process that I had been involved in the last 15 years. So really, congratulations there. <clears throat> and I'd start by also just laying out the premise of the grand bargain as a change process. I think it was a brilliantly designed change process from the very beginning. Um, and if you look at the, the uh, elements of the paper, it said we're not really looking at the system as a mechanist system where you can change a cog in the wheel. Um, they were really taking an interest model mm -hmm. uh, where they said donors and implementers will come in equal numbers to the table, so 15 and 15, and they will have equal footing as they negotiate their agreements. Um, there are 10 work streams, and each work stream was led by a donor and an implementer. ICFA was involved uh, with Germany, uh, uh, leading the work stream on reporting. I'd also say that from the paper's perspective, it looked at the political dimension very well. Um, you might have power as a donor because you're bringing resources, but some of the really best negotiators were those who are also bringing information, they were bringing knowledge, they were bringing relationships, they were bringing networks, they were bringing proximity to the ground. So really, if you could capitalize on that in a skilled way, you could really make an influence in the outcome of the negotiations. I think another important piece of the paper that we need to emphasize is that the grand bargain was really a multi-stakeholder process, which is really important in having that buy-in. Um, I'd say that we need to learn lessons from this for the new way of working, uh, which for the time being is a very UN-centric process. So if I would pick one thing from the paper um, to address the dark side of what Andres had just said, um, it's like taking a, uh, the lens of the mind. The system is a mind. Um, here we see that if you, if you look at the system as a mind, people are resistant to change. Even if their leaders have agreed to making a change at the top, uh, once you actually have to implement the change, when you have to talk to these departments who will have to change the way they do business, um, they would start to fear that change because it has an impact on them. And I think here, if we look at the system as a mind, the thing that you have said in the paper that we should look at is communication to support change. 
So when we talk about communication, it's people understanding why are we doing the grand bargain in the first mm. place? We've kind of forgotten. Yeah. It's the understanding the benefits. So if we look at the quid pro quo, it's if mm. you're increasingly transparent, you will not have to do as mm. many reports. We will reduce the level of earmarking. It's to understand that these benefits are supposed to accrue to those who've done the change. Um, ICVA has tried to help with the communication because it's become a very complicated process. We, mm. You might have read our paper, um, The Grand Bargain Explained. We did a paper on the, the Global Refugee Compact, and we'll be soon issuing a paper on the new way of working explained. But that's one-way communication. You're reading a document. Mm -hmm. What your paper on change has said is you need platforms for two-way communication. And here, we would want to see the dis this, uh, dis disagreements. Uh, maybe there are people that see their potential repercussions for taking on a change. Let's hash it out in an open setting. Um, and I would close by looking at your suggestion on looking at monitoring. Mm -hmm in a way um, where you have a platform for the, the stakeholders to come together and say, we have a common picture of what's happening on the ground now. Um, we want to reflect on what we've done. And we want to connect people to the process, because it's about people. It's not necessarily about organizations. So what we have done yesterday, my colleague Jeremy is here. Um, he's running our Less Paper, More Aid initiative. We brought five of the grand bargain work streams together. Um, the ones that are dealing most directly with donor conditions. So transparency, reporting, multi-year funding planning, reducing duplication and management costs, reducing earmarking. We brought them all together as co-conveners, and we really learned about where each thing stood. Uh, we talked about the quid pro quo, regaining that element, um, but we also tried to see where can we sequence, where can we prioritize, where can we have synergy? And I would challenge if we could take one thing from this paper, could we have more platforms like that for some of the other work streams that you care about, localization, participation revolution, the humanitarian development nexus. Mm -hmm. There are other parts of the grand bargain, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard to follow them all mm -hmm. at once, mm -hmm. but to have that kind of platform. And the last thing on the leadership mm -hmm. point, you talk about leadership providing vision, but also there are many leaders in a change process. And yesterday's event that we were part of, uh, a co-convener stood up and said, I'm willing to host. So can we find more of these leaders that are willing to, to support those kind of platforms? Mr. that's great. Thank you very much. Um, just to make sure I, I completely understood, are you suggesting that the increased communication, better communication um, within the ground bargain is, is the answer to this dark side that uh, Andras has mentioned? Uh, we've been talking about communication in three ways within mm. our organizations. Mm. Uh, some of us work in very large organizations that haven't fully understood the process. Mm. Uh, we talk about communications within the grand bargain signatories yeah. Yeah. Um, and also communications more broadly to those uh, who think that we were negotiating this in a dark, smoke-filled room. <laughs> um, the idea is not to be an exclusive club, mm. but to reach out. And when I'm talking about communication, it's mm. about exchanging information, but also having that platform to sort out some of these problems. So there's a reason why donors haven't necessarily made as much progress on things yeah. like um, increasing funding to multi-year yeah. uh, multi-year programs because they need better um, yeah. visibility on the planning side. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that uh, that this kind of platform would be quite helpful. Andres, is she right? <laughs> I think communication is key. Mm. Um, but when I when I when I think about the, the quid pro quo, actually, between donors and, and aid organizations, I imagine a strategic game. I imagine that um, on the country level, you have the humanitarian country team and you have donors, and they have to, you know, they have to agree on 
what are the toughest issues, the thorniest issues that we just cannot, you know, make progress on. And I think that there they have to lay down their clear expectations of what they expect mm. from the other. Mm. And then they, um, they also need to, you know, think about what kind of leverage they have against the other. Yeah. In, in many contexts, uh, and this might be, you know, going a little bit further away from, from Melissa's point, but in many contexts you think that, uh, you know, in most contexts, you would think that donors have the upper hand, right, mm. in these negotiations. And, and in fact, uh, mm. often you find that aid organizations um, can block reform, they can block mm. pressure. Um, often in certain contexts, high visibility contexts, you see donors that, you know, just mm. have a huge pressure to spend, yeah. and, and which leaves aid organizations in a very good negotiating mm. uh, position. Mm. So... You know, for me, the quick propose is about, you know, laying down the, the expectations and it's about thinking through mm. as, as in a game of chess of mm. like, how do I increase my leverage? How do I make sure mm. the other person actually mm. reacts? Mm. And how do I build up the mm. trust? What kind of signals do I provide? Mm. Um, yeah. So. No, thank you very much. I'm going to change tack a little bit now and go to Brendan. Um, and in my, my question to to Brendan is about um, is about whether we humanitarians are actually in control of the changes that we see, um, or, or ha, you know have the changes that you have seen over the years, Brendan, are, are they happening uh, as a as a result of uh, things that are happening outside of the system, globalization, technological change, and the like, or are they happening because we've got really good at our prid quote pro and so on and so forth and actually making it happen ourselves what, what's 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 your view on that well I, I, I'll get my bus fare by saying it obviously is both mm. uh, and I think the paper is very clear in trying to um, challenge us to accept that there are internal things over which the so-called system has some control and things on the outside and the, the way to manage change is to articulate both I have a. Um, I've just changed my business card to failed change manager after the vote uh, at the beginning of this session. Um, but my my sort of cynical view is that what I have lived through is a so-called system that is actually a set of you know those jugglers with spinning plates, and we are rewarded to keep our plate spinning. And the whole of the professionalization is focused on, it, and, and it comes back to your strong point about we are a supply side uh, business and we try to professionalize our way that we manage our spinning plate. And so whatever model you have, it's then the question of c can you articulate those spinning plates into a more coherent whole? And how do you recognize the, 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 the external environment? But the sad thing is that I think we still incentivize the better, faster, and more efficient way that we run our plate. And we don't incentivize the other key points been coming across from the, the table, which is that n nobody has the answer. So collaborative action is absolutely at the center of, of change management. But we live in a resource-poor environment, so actually our model is competitive. We actually have to show how we are different 
and better in order to attract scarce resources into our, um, into our plate spinning business. So that's the sort of um, slightly negative position I think that I have come to. Um, and then that is compounded by, it, if we're in, um, you know, wh what is limiting managing the internal change side of, the, uh, of this uh, dichotomy that you've set up, which I'm arguing isn't really, shouldn't be a dichotomy, we've got to learn how to make it worse, uh, work. But on, on looking at the internal thing, because I think we're schizophrenic. We, we are managed as a supply side organization or organizations, but we want to be judged by being a consumer-led, affected population-driven mm. business. Mm. So I think we, we, we close in because we're living this uncomfortable dilemma of being rewarded for one thing but being judged by another. And so, again, I come back to what's being said. If we can't articulate and communicate a unifying vision, we, we, won't, move, we won't move forward. So I think at the, the heart of it, it is not a technical organizational issue, it's a cultural issue, and again, that's right at the center of the paper. And so I will go away with, with Paul's story. I think stories about the, putting the, the human at the center of our analysis is the thing that potentially drives change, and so I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. And I had the benefit or privilege of going to a Harvard uh, executive business thing paid for by the World Bank, thank you. And I came away having been exposed to change management in a lot of different sectors. And I think if, if I have a criticism, we are a bit inward looking and bedeviled by the challenges that we live with and don't look out enough. And, excuse me, I'm just have a drink. Rather like Paul's story, uh, the thing I could remember after weeks of be having my head beaten in by incredibly bright people was the managing director of a, an Alcoa, which is the big American aluminium company. He was um, hired, and his first big business meeting with all the investors, um, he stood up and said, I'm going to make Alcoa a company where there is zero tolerance for industrial accidents. And everybody's what, what is this man on about? We've hired some hippie who hasn't understood business processes. And over 10 years, focusing on people, focusing on a clear, simple message, he turned the business round because suddenly it was a people-centered business it had to have the view of the people who were falling off ladders into hot cauldrons of melted metal. <coughs> and over 10 years, he multiplied the, um, the, the value of the business by five and the share value by five. But just by a simple vision that was easy to communicate and that was people-centered. And I think so for me, that's where we ought to be starting because that's actually what our rhetoric is, uh, is about. And one other story, I was involved with Kantar, which is the big uh, market research company, and I got them to meet with leaders of 
some of the UK INGOs and humanitarians. And their lesson to us was, do you know what your customer wants? Um, and do you know what your competitors are doing? And it's the two things we have been historically very weak on and about the best example in terms of knowing what affected populations is the lovely ground truth, but it's still fighting for being embedded. And Cantor said, look, we've got market researchers in every single capital around the world. Why aren't you using these people to do real-time getting out, talking to survivors, building you a picture? And why don't you know who is best at doing what and either competing with them to make sure they do it better or move and do... So two simple sort of components of, the, of, of sort of change and leadership outside our sector um, I think might be helpful. And then um, I'll stop. But just in terms of the internal changes, I am still absolutely convinced that cash is the big change opportunity that puts power into local purchase, local markets. It changes the whole dynamic. So, And that is a, an internal sort of support. I mean, a bit the problem is that we don't... We're never quite sure whether host governments and donors are inside the tent or outside the tent, but clearly they are absolutely crucial. But if, if we adopt um, and fight for cash, then I think that is a real opportunity for, for change across the, uh, across the whole sector. The other one is, I think, preparedness. The fire brigade, 90% of their time is practicing and um, getting better at 10% responding. We're about 90% responding and 10% trying to work out how we um, you know, uh, should be prepared. All of these things need to be. And I think then clearly there are some really good examples that are growing about collaborative action and whether it's the clusters with all their strengths and weaknesses. But we are, I think, late in the day realizing, and as the report is challenging us to do, to find models of collaborative action that can stand against the sort of competitive, divisive way that we're structured. Brendan, thank you so much for that. Much, much food for thought. Very quickly, just like to turn to Paul. You've heard a lot there, Paul. Any kind of instant reflection that you want to chip in with at this point? One very brief reflection on the mm. grand bargain, because I mm. thought, um, I mean, there's so much there, but yes. hopefully we can uh, group here and online mm. and, and interrogate and talk about some of that. Mm. On the grand bargain, I think, you know, just to underline some of the things mm. that colleagues here have said, the, you know, there's three things, three things quite special, I think, about the uh, design. The recognition of power. Mm. Yeah, recognizing that actually change is, you know, politics is involved and it's not an apolitical environment. And, and I think taking that front and center is very, uh, very effective. I think um, expanding the stakeholders, as you said, to actually include the donors. You know, the donors were always part of that system and so they had to be in that conversation. Very powerful. Um, I think having this, this container approach where you have goals but you don't have a plan to get to it. So I think all three of those things. I think three challenges... Uh, and I you know much less about the process than than either of you do, but but three challenges that 
I perceive might be there. Um, I think the first is, is and, and Melissa, you, you spoke to this, um, if it's working, it's going to get messy. If it doesn't get messy, it is kind of not working. It's sterile. Things aren't changing. There is no conflict. There's no... Um, as it gets messy, it, and as it gets further out, as more and more people become involved, these are, these are symptoms of success in a change process. However, those symptoms of success then create their own challenge. And the challenge is how do you have that messiness going on in all sorts of different places in such a way that people can see the whole as well as the parts. And I think this platform thing is really important, so salute you for, for doing that. Um, I think the other two things are, you know, questions to those involved in the grand bargain is, are the processes that they are using like the future they would wish to be involved in or like the past that they're trying to move away from? Um, because that's a, that's a key, you know, you can kill something immediately by, you don't get things different by doing them the same, you know? If you're producing a lot of paper on the, you know, less paper, more aid, it's probably not going to work. Yeah? So trying to harmonize the process with the result. And then the third thing um, is expectations. Uh, it worried me a little bit that one year on, there was this expectation that, you know, one year on and what's happened and we've got the annual, you know, and it kind of, you know, what, what realistically did people think was going to have happened around something that ambitious in 12 months? What worries me about that is that the people involved, if they believe that one year on nothing really is happening and they haven't revolutionized the world in a year and they get bored and they move on to doing something else because there is this requirement to invest for a long period of time. Build on the messiness. Please do. That's really helpful, and, and perhaps I, I, I dwelt on internal change or the opportunities. It's crucial that we acknowledge and respond positively to the external changes because those are real opportunities. And clearly, we haven't made, but the digital revolution is completely changing the way that we are going to be. Uh, asked to respond mm. and it offers again the chance to be affected population led mm. I don't know if you saw in the, in the news today there's a wonderful picture of a sad picture in Puerto Rico of people with their mobile phones just within about a 50 yard radius of a mobile repeater mask trying to get a signal in order to link up with the people that disaster-affected populations always respond to first, which is their family and friends. That's where they look for. So this is going to change the, you know, change the dynamic. And urbanization in all its um, you know, ramifications, again, are changing the whole way that we need to operate. So we need to embrace that rather than run away from it. Thank you, Brendan. Melissa, I saw you nodding when uh, Paul was speaking, particularly when he was speaking about messiness. Did you want mm. to say anything about that? Yes, we were talking mm. earlier, and um, I was saying right now a lot of people are confused about mm. where the grand bargain stands mm. year on, um, and part of that confusion, as it's noted in your paper, is normal. 
-hmm. as part of a change process. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have disagreements. If you didn't have disagreements, then mm -hmm. something would be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so we just need a mechanism to mm -hmm. handle that. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that mm -hmm. if you talk to any of the Grand Bargain signatories mm -hmm. now, none of them has a full picture of all 10 work streams and all 52 mm -hmm. commitments. Mm -hmm. um, but some of them are very passionate mm -hmm. about the IATI data standard or the 25% localization target. Mm -hmm. or So if you look at it as a collective, some of us are very passionate. How can we keep that passion and momentum? Mm -hmm. So there is a new development now with the World Bank CEO, Kristalina Georgieva, coming back on board as an eminent person. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that her re-entry into the, the whole process will breathe some fresh air and uh, mm -hmm. rejuvenate our enthusiasm. Uh, yesterday, uh, one of the members of the Grand Bargain uh, signatory group said, uh, one year on, if you had a child, <laughs> you have a one-year-old child, you wouldn't expect them to be able to walk. Um, so we need to give ourselves time to support this thing. And uh, it will be messy, but we love it, <laughs> potentially. Um, and we want to see it thrive. I want to uh, make sure that the, the audience here um, have an opportunity to uh, ask some questions. Um, just before I do that, we're just going to ask Andras and Melissa if there's one thing that you think is uh, necessary to make the grand bargain process a success, what would it be? Wow. Andres, sorry, I'll put you on the spot wow. there. Haven't yes, I? I exactly. Yeah. I know. Because there's only one thing. Can I, can I make it three? <laughs> Quickly. Okay. Um, I think first, you. So, because the grand bargain has ingredients mm. that that could end up mm. being quite revolutionary mm. and quite transformative. Mm. I think what's really important is to keep that high visibility in that mm. global marketplace of ideas right. that we have. So right. compared to new way of working, compared mm. to uh, the mm. refugee compact, mm. or even transformative agenda. So mm. it's very important mm. to maintain that high, high visibility mm. because it has that mm. uh, potential. Mm. Um, second, um, I think it will be very important to, to keep up that, that pressure, whether it comes from the mm. general public who are interested mm. about this localization agenda mm. or whether it mm. comes from annual reports or mm. whether it comes mm. from work streams, mm. sort of, you know, mm. peer pressuring mm. each other mm. of like how much, mm. you know, have you done? Mm. So that, that would be very important. And third, um, I think it's, you know, making it a success will require, you know, thinking about, again, the, the field. So mm -hmm. about the, the country context. We talk a lot, you know, in this first year about global processes, headquarters, you know, mm -hmm. discussing, you know, what, what, the, what the marker means mm -hmm. and, and all oh, that yes, stuff. Yeah. But ultimately, um, you know, we need to see change on the ground. And here maybe I'm, I'm going to go a little bit against uh, uh, Melissa. Uh, that, that I think, I think uh, there's a lot of impatience uh, on the ground, and, and I, I know we should be patient, and, and change takes time, but um, there's a lot of impatience, and that is quite counterproductive, and it's very difficult to tell people that, hey, you know, just lean back, it will, you know, it will come. Um, they they want to see changes now, and, and some of the discussions in the country level, as I understand, mm -hmm. already include that kind of, okay, so we both signed up for this grand bargain, mm -hmm. You agreed, you know, aid organizations telling donors, you agreed to uh, give us, uh, you know, to decrease the earmarking of your finances. Mm -hmm. So why don't we see any of that? Mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, poisoning the discussion and, and they're asking the same thing. Well, you agreed that you'll, you know, do better needs assessments or you will do a better response and we don't see any of that. Mm -hmm. So I think what's really important is, is, is exactly on the country uh, level, we, we need to 
be able to find a way to leverage mm. this process in a very positive way mm. and in, in, in making that, you know, more about, you know, finding that vision. Mm. And the, the vision, again, mm. is, is that, you know, shift of decision-making mm. power. Uh, to aid organizations mm -hmm. and 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 to to work towards that build up that trust mm -hmm. because um, I think if we just wait another year or two mm -hmm. um, you know the the, the mm -hmm. prospects are not great mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. it's it's high time Brilliant. <laughs> Melissa what do you think um, I think you will be seeing if you give us a chance you will be seeing some uh, country level expressions of what the grab market is trying to do. Um, there have been some recent developments with regard to multi-year planning um, that will be rolled out in several countries. And there are some things that we're trying to do. For example, your organization has helped come up with an analysis uh, looking at all the donor reports. If we could uh, boil down all the questions to eight questions plus a bonus three. So we're actually testing out a harmonized, simplified reporting approach in Iraq, Somalia, and, and Myanmar. And we'd like to, as we've been talking with some of the, the grand bargain signatories, once we can roll that out and test mm -hmm. it, and we want it's a prototype, so we don't want to roll it out too quickly, and then people are even more mm -hmm. frustrated because mm -hmm. they need to learn it. But we're looking for opportunities to have that kind of quid pro quo in those mm -hmm. specific country contexts, and to give more visibility to some flagships. Mm -hmm. So we, we we hear you. We hear the frustration. Um, we're frustrated mm -hmm. too. We'd like to move forward, but when you come up with things that require harmonization of approach between mm -hmm. donors, you UN. Mm -hmm. And uh, NGOs, it's going to take time to get it right, and we don't want to roll out something too quickly and then make the situation at the end of the day. As we were saying, we don't want to be more bureaucratic when we're supposed to be more efficient. So thank you very, very much. I'm going to t turn to all of you now. Um, if you have any questions for the panelists or, or Paul, uh, please raise your hand. And um, if you could say who you are and... Uh, what you do, that would be great. Madam, please, at the back there. Thank you. Hi, I'm not sure. <laughs> Is it on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's not you don't hear it very well, but it is on. Oh, it is on. Oh, yeah, oh no, hello. We can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Catherine Turner. I'm advocacy director at Publish What You Fund. So um, we we promote um, transparency and aid. Our background's in development aid, but we have been taking a keen interest in the transparency work stream. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's really struck us is this really ambitious timeline with the deadline of May. 2018 for everything to be wrapped up and obviously having worked in change processes previously and sort of from what you said clearly that's that's a longer burn mm. to really get all this mm. this really mm. integrated mm. Um, I just would really love to hear the panelists thoughts around mm. how mm. to keep that momentum going beyond mm. 2018 mm. Um, because mm. I think the deadline obviously serves as a great mm. um, incentivizer for all of this and what your thoughts are to how mm. to keep that momentum going mm. beyond that mm. very tight deadline. Mm. Thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. Who else? Sir, please. Uh, this is Ala Khattab. I'm um, former Roche manager in Oxfam GB in Syria uh -huh. and current postgraduate student in the University of Birmingham. Mm. I have one simple question, actually. You, you've just mentioned that we have 30 signatories for this. And how do we ensure, as as a, as um, as this initiative, that we are not doing harm to the to the organisation that they are not 
signing this um, uh, this initiative because this reminds me actually with the Sphere project, with the start of the Sphere project, mm -hmm. and we ended up with some division between the, I mean, the francophone kind of organizations mm -hmm. and the English-speaking organizations. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Adam, please. Yes. No, Joanne, wait, wait, wait for the oh, microphone. Yes. Now nice I'm to see you. Hello. <laughs> many of you in the room mm. might already know the answer mm. to this, including Paul. But mm. wh where do you see this going, this initiative, or where would you like to see it go um, in terms of the report and in mm. terms of you know, building on the meeting in, that, in, 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 in taking this forward? One more question, anyone? Please. Hello, I'm Hillary Miller. I work with mm. um, one of the non-signatories, MSF, as a mm. wash field worker. Mm. Um, my question and comment is that on a very high level, I mm. think aid should be working towards working ourselves out of a job. And one of the things that really has not been discussed here, and I'm wondering if you all with the big brains here um, mm. have some comments on the World Bank and the influence that aid has on countries. Because if we're working towards uh, bringing people out of poverty, and I'd like to disregard uh, natural disasters, we need to be... or economies need to be stronger. And with all the strings attached to aid and um, the political pressures, this has not been discussed today. So I'm wondering if, um, if you have some, some comments on that and how we can be working towards that as well as aid organizations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to uh, the panel. Uh, so there's questions about the timeline, uh, do no harm, where, where we see the report going, um, and a uh, question about the World Bank. Mm -hmm. Who would like to respond? Melissa would. Good. Well, we can all respond. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Who would okay. like to respond first? Okay. <laughs> I'll take a crack at it. Um, I agree with you then. It's an ambitious timeline on transparency, um, and there's a lot of support out there for the transparency agenda. The current focus at the moment is promoting uh, compliance with the Yadi data standard, and one of the commitments in the grand bargain was not only to promote that, but to also support organizations who would need a little bit of help um, to adapt their systems um, so that maybe it could be automated, this uh, regular publishing. So they've got a lot of work done on things like developing a dashboard and, and making more public where people stand in terms of implementing or um, publishing to that standard. But I think it would be great to see more work done on investing in the capacity of organizations to do this where it could, in, in the end, their systems are adapted and it's automated. So hopefully we can invest in that now. Uh, when we get to that timeline, um, things will be, will be in a better position. How do we do no harm? I, I probably should have explained, we initially started with 30 signatories, um, but now it's more than doubled. So we're trying to uh, 
cast a wider net in terms of getting different participation there. But I would say we could do more in terms of outreach to, for example, national NGOs, for example, affected populations. I think there needs to be more done, and, and this comes to my point in the last session on um, creating platforms for discussion and having more communication. And then finally, it's really great to hear um, the question from our colleague that works at MSF. Uh, I didn't really get the chance to talk about it, but one of the new things that a lot of people are discussing is the so-called new way of working. It's an initiative uh, that was given a little bit of visibility at the World Humanitarian Summit when there was a commitment to action that was agreed by eight UN agencies, the IOM and the World Bank. And it was really about looking at this nexus. And the, the thing that's new about it is this idea of working together towards collective outcomes. And it would be bringing humanitarians development and now with the new secretary general, um, peace actors as appropriate. So we're, we're at this point in time where it's, 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 it's still very nascent. They don't want to roll out guidelines uh, or anything. They want to allow for country level experimentation. But there are opportunities and there are risks. And we want to explore that a little bit further because at the end of the day, we want to move beyond this short-term approach but still maintain humanitarian principles. Mm. Do you want me to do a quickie? Oh, I'd love you to do. Uh, on, the, on the timeline, I bear the scars. I think that it's absolutely crucial to be realistic about timelines. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have moments where you take stock. Um, for me, the challenge is that the, what undermines a lot of these initiatives is that they are initiatives, and there's just one more thing for frontline local organizations or frontline staff, whether in development or humanitarian, to respond with. And so shifting it to be part of the organization rather than another initiative, for me, is the, is the key. But we, we tend to just keep inventing new initiatives that we then try and keep afloat rather than trying to see. And a lot of the, the accountability work that I've been involved in, as one example, is it was siloed with the specialists um, who felt that they didn't have a voice and it wasn't integrated and rewarded for frontline senior staff. So for, for me, it's timeline plus integration into, in, into an organization. Um, I do think that we, again, it speaks to the sort of professionalization debate which is embedded in the, in the report. We keep, try, we keep getting cleverer or setting new standards, and that is often seen as a way of keeping smaller or weaker organizations out. And it really does not help at all. So how can we value collaborating with them rather than showing we're better than is again central for me to, to, to as, as part of the change agenda. Mm. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Joanne, for, for uh, uh, lobbing an easy ball. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it, the, the, the question is what would success from this report look like, you know, and it, it would be that the meeting of which the report is a capture um, was contributed to a mindset change over time into what is and is not possible and how things get done. Um, 
and that that mindset change in turn uh, contributed to more effective change with less blood and treasure spent on things that aren't going to work. Um, now, in terms of what's the plan for that, I mean, to a degree, I think the meeting was itself quite an important moment for that. You know, we did a nice thing at the meeting, which I thought was fun. We had the, all these posters around the walls saying, meetings don't change anything, yeah? Um, and we then asked people afterwards whether meetings, whether the meeting had changed anything. And, you know, some people said they were going to use the ideas, very, a small proportion of people said they were going to use the ideas directly. They were going to go back and actually use these ideas. More, what had happened from the meeting, people said, was that they'd kind of met other people that they could continue to develop ideas with, so they were creating social networks. We put in, great. Um, which is, they got some new ideas, um, they'd met some new people, and they discussed ideas with people. So, and I think that's the way, the way that we will achieve success is through people talking. Um, and and interrogating ideas, and these are not you know just our ideas as you know very well. I know that you know a lot of this has been out there, um, and as Brendan was saying, is out there in the world. So, um, how do we get there? I think you know we from the Secretariat will be very very happy to talk about how these ideas specifically relate to change programs with LNAP members. So if anyone is here or is online. Um, you know, and wanted to kind of think about their own organizational systemic change. That's, that's one way to have those conversations. Um, and obviously also with Grand Bargain, those involved in the Grand Bargain, you know, if there was any way of, of, of having conversations with people engaged in that very important initiative. Um, I think it's about increasing the volume of conversation, rather as has happened around other important changes like, like Sphere or like Cash, until it kind of becomes a reality. And, and the paradigm changes, if that answers the question. Um, very briefly, just on the, on the point about uh, the, the role of aid, which we hadn't talked about, um, I suppose the, the issue there is that, you know, is the orientation of the humanitarian sector towards change in general, um, because one of the things that's quite interesting, maybe as a result of discussions around operational neutrality, there is this kind of sense that the sector is somehow not related to larger political and economic forces in the world. Um, and in terms of change, that means that we often, I think this goes back to what Brendan was saying, we often think that we can change stuff, we have influence over stuff, we really have almost no influence over at all. Um, you know, really, when it comes to, you know, many issues around access, around international humanitarian law, we may have some influence, but we don't actually have the decision-making authority or the leverage on that. Um, so I guess there's a variety of things that come out of that. Firstly, you know, probably we need to accept that we are part of a system which is filled with inequities um, and power differentiation, and that humanitarianism is, to a degree, an emanation of that same system. It is another thing that comes out of the way the world is now. Um, and that 
then is a rather uncomfortable place to be, because if you are part of the way the world is now, how do you simultaneously become part of a different world, the way the world might be? And that's always the challenge and change. Maybe one of the things is not by the things that you do, because we have very little power to change that, uh, but by the things we don't do, you know, by the saying no's. There's a, a, a consultant uh, and thinker um, whose name escapes me, <laughs> but who says that no is the beginning of a conversation in terms of change. You know, you can always say yes, yes, yes. You know, it just yes continues things the same way. But it's actually when when an organisation says we can't do that, we won't do that. That that's that's where there is some possibility to have one foot in in the now and one foot also in the future. I don't know if that made any sense. Paul, thank you very much. Just to let you know, I'm having, uh, we're getting lots of questions coming in um, from the online audience. Many of them are around the grand bargain, and many of them are around uh, measuring change. And so I'm just going to read out a couple. Uh, how can we measure the impact of the grand bargain on the ground so far? Uh, and another one... Um, both from on anonymous people. I uh, don't know why. Uh, the grand bargain currently relies on self-reporting and annual evaluation that's largely based on this self-reporting. What would be a better means of tracking progress and assuring accountability for commitments? And so there's some issues here around how to, to monitor and measure change, uh, particularly in relation to the grand bargain. Paul, could I put you on the spot on the... On the Oh, Andres, okay. Having been involved in doing... Yeah, no, I'm that. happy to, yes. yes. I, I think mm. I heard also a little bit of criticism mm. at the very mm. second at the second question. So mm. I, but, mm. uh, you know, on, 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 on that some of the assessment about mm. the grand bargain is very much mm. based on self-reports, mm. um, and, and that is true. And when we looked at how we, you know, when we looked at this mm. assignment, how do we measure mm. progress mm. in the grand bargain... Mm. Um, we we had of course you know a lot of discussion around it of like mm. how can you measure it's such a grand uh, change mm. process how can you actually track what's happening mm. um, and we consciously decided not to look at mm. the the you know results on the field mm. so here mm. first year probably mm. too early mm. uh, we recommended looking at some results on the field mm. uh, for the second and third and and mm. later iterations of mm. the of the report mm. so in this first year we we looked at you know very much the process mm. side of things mm. very much you know what kind of you know either at the work stream level you know joint <laughs> meetings what has mm. happened uh, but also we uh, looked at um, you know what organizations told us mm. and, and what donors told us mm. about you know, different measures that they mm. implemented inside their organizations mm. and, and try to assess that, okay, is that significant mm. or not? Mm. But, so, you know, I'm not, I think it's worth looking forward. Mm. Like, how will we be able to measure the success of the grand bargain? Mm. And I think ultimately there are three fundamental questions mm. um, that we should be able to answer. And one is around efficiency. So, do more sense of every dollar spent on humanitarian aid mm. um, uh, uh, um, reach affected people? So do we have more of that mm. money actually get mm. to the people that need it? Mm. A second question, are people who receive um, aid or services mm. by humanitarian mm. actors, are they increasingly satisfied with that? Mm. And third, mm. do we actually prioritize the neediest of the neediest mm 
or we focus on people who are easier to reach. Mm. And, and I think some of these questions reach you know, to the very heart of the grand bargain of what it tries to change. Yeah. Um, and that's what we should be looking at. Now, and, and this might be a little bit technical, but of course, if you just look at these uh, questions uh, in, their, in themselves, mm. then you won't be able to attribute change to the grand bargain. I mean, there might be many reasons why we, mm. we see people being more satisfied, mm. why you see you know, ground truth measuring mm. higher yes. satisfaction, yes. Yes. or yes. why... Yes. And some of this we yes. can't even measure yes. right now. So we yes. don't know actually how many cents of yes. the dollar yes. actually reaches people. We have, yes. And this is quite a travesty. Yes. But yes. Uh, you know, there might be already a progress that we yeah. get there that yeah. we are able to, to measure it. Yes. Um, so, 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 but there's a question about attribution, and this is why you know, um, it's going to be a important not to look at only at these, the results on the ground, Mm. But to look at you know, keep mm. keep your eye on the processes mm. at headquarters. Keep your eye on on this mm. kind of intermediary output level mm. um, indicators. You know we have indicators for localization, mm. with targets on localization. Mm. We have some kind of indicators on on on, on earmarking. Mm. So you have to take that whole package together. Mm and see where it stands. So I, I wish good luck to whoever is doing the next report because they'll have a hell of a job. No, absolutely. Brendan? Just a couple of thoughts. Mm. I mean, I think measuring change or impact mm. is absolutely crucial. Mm. Um, the problem in when I've been involved in this is that the evidence tends to be anecdotal rather than systematic. So how, how do you... Um, get a, a, an overview because mm. reporting tends to pick mm. out mm. either some of the, as it were, the mm. bad things so lessons can be learned or mm. some anecdotal stories mm. about what's, what's working, but it doesn't give you a, an, a, a management picture that enables you actually to, to, to do something. I think we are very weak on external verification, so a lot of this is not going to be trusted anyway unless we acknowledge that we need some methods of external verification. And then the good thing is, with the digital revolution, the effective populations are going to tell us even if we don't <laughs> do anything about it. So there is a huge change anyway going on, and it's time we woke up and smelt the coffee. <laughs> Very good. We've got time for uh, a couple more questions. Madam, please, you in, in the red. Thank you. My name is Doreen McIntyre. I work as an independent consultant with um, NGOs, many of whom are un undergoing change process. Mm. I wonder if we could come back to something that Paul talked about at the beginning, which mm. was this idea of building on the positive and hanging on and valuing to things that actually do work. I wonder if the panel could say a little bit more on, on that point, on how to get that balance right, because mm. you don't mm. want it to be no. so fixated on, no. on the old ways, no. but without losing sight of them, yes. um, that, that it actually stifles any, any change. But equally, to get that balance right and actually build on the positives and the, and the, what, work, the what is working, how do, we, how do we get that and have we got any good examples of, of where you've seen that in action? Mm. That's a very nice question. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Well, I think that's. It is a very nice question, and uh, it's a positive question, and it will be very good to hear the views of the panelists on that. How can we get? Um, uh, how can we build on the positives? The, um, the way 
I tried to do it with the DEC agencies was to start from a framework that said, uh, well, let's agree some indicators of the sorts of changes you, you want to deliver, and then do you have policies in place that support that change? Do you have evidence of practice that is delivering it? And do you have evidence of assurance that where you haven't got it, you had systems to close the circle and go back? And the wonderful thing was that on the whole, the specialists who obviously had to produce these reports for the top floor used to systematically score themselves down so the top floor woke up and said, oh my God, we can't have that report going on. Um, uh, and it was, a very, it was a very nice way of validating the sort of key components of a change process and offering an opportunity for the, the staff to get in, involved and use it as a way of, of, of building momentum. It seemed to work. I think um, thinking about some of the research we do in other areas, particularly around leadership and coordination, um, one of the one of the things here is that there are there are a lot of common challenges which people face on the ground, and often they have found quite good ways of addressing those challenges. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about some of the some of the things that we found that effective leadership teams had done, um, or indeed effective clusters in some cases. And what's interesting is those things are not always recognized by the people who are doing them. They're, they're so sort of innate in just the way we do stuff around here that actually it hasn't been surfaced as something that's really interesting to look at. Um, in some cases, those things are also against formal policies, and so there are reasons for not surfacing them. Um, but I think that part of it is about trying to just identify where things feel or look, or there's some evidence that something in here is going right and making those things that are either covert or not actually recognized by the people that are doing them, actually talking into that and finding out what is this thing? What's the thing that happens here that makes it work? Um, and that can be very powerful. Um, and I think there have been, there have been examples of that around, around the leadership, around the coordination. I think also if one looks at things like the clusters, for example, they didn't come from nowhere. It was actually the recognition of a way that people were already addressing uh, in very different places, were already addressing a common problem that they had. Um, the other thing is, of course, as well as sort of trying to make people conscious of the things they're all doing, already doing, also a slightly different tactic looking for things which are, um, you know, run counter. I can't remember the, 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 the term that's... Counterintuitive? Not necessarily counterintuitive, but actually, actually the, the, the sort of the cases where people are just breaking the rules. Um, and because often there is something going on there that they found it's necessary to kind of push through and do it a different way. Um, and that, I think, and I, I think uh, some of the work on innovation also showed that, you know, some, some, of, some of these things, 
they might not be very visible, but they are there. So it's a, so much of so much of what seems to work in the change in in this particular area, but in general, is that it's not about the skills of planning; it's about the skill of noticing, noticing things that are unusual that are going on, noticing how things are developing, um, and I think honing that skill of noticing is at least part of the answer. Nice. Melissa, any thoughts? Yeah, I would mm. say the skill at noticing mm. is really mm. a great idea. If you actually would dissect the grand bargain, you would see um, little ingredients building on things. Uh, from the NGO sector, for example, Charter for Change had a lot to do with some of the language you see on localization, a lot of what we've done on accountability to affected populations and others. Um, now when we look at this whole navigating the nexus, how do we, um, as humanitarians, uh, connect to what's happening in the development in perhaps even the peace sector. Um, our colleagues on the UN side say um, NGOs who've been doing this, who've been working uh, in multi-mission NGOs, have learned so many lessons. Could we get some tips and tricks from NGOs who've been doing this as we try to embark as a UN on this nexus? And I think there's an appetite for learning. Um, I don't think that everyone's noticed yet, but if people take the time to just share that learning, we might be able to see some relevant lessons learned in, in, in trying not to do any harm respecting the principles, but also taking advantage of some of the opportunities of having a more longer-term approach. Brilliant. Thank you. Andres? I was very satisfied with the answers here. So. Okay, very good. Well, look, I think we have... Uh, very, very, very quickly. It's, it's gone very, very fast, hasn't it? We've come to the end of the, uh, the, uh, the launch. Um, I had so many, there were so many questions here, and I, sh I should say to people that did submit questions, apologies to you all if we didn't have an opportunity to answer all of them, but there were very, very many. Uh, I'd like to thank Maria and the comms team for the, the great animation and, and, and the poll. Um, May, are we a little bit more optimistic than we were at the beginning about our ability to manage change? Well, I'll leave that one with you as a thought. But most of all, I'd like to thank Paul, Andres, Melissa and, and Brendan for a very uh, thought-provoking and stimulating discussion. So please give them a round of applause. Thank you very, very much for coming. I do believe there are some uh, drinks and, and nibbles outside, so if you do want to stay uh, for a chat and uh, some refreshments, you're very, very welcome. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>